We are better together, are we not? What a great reminder that video is of uh, what it means to be a believer and specifically what it means to be a Southern Baptist where we are banding together 45,000 plus churches, sending uh, roughly 4,000 missionaries across the globe, working together, sh- sharing resources, and, and doing it all for the sake of the gospel to meet and to minister to the needs of people. And so this morning, as you give uh, to Red Lane Baptist Church, you're not really giving to a church, you're giving through the local church here. And, and a portion of what you give, it obviously, is, is used here locally to do our ministry, but then we send on a portion uh, through our denominational uh, entities to take the gospel to the ends of the world, to plant churches and, and to do all that we do as Christians and specifically as Southern Baptists. So thank you so much for being a church that believes in the gospel, that believes in reaching people, that believes in ministering and meeting the needs of others. And so this morning, I'm just going to pray in just a moment and pray and ask God's blessing upon the offering that we will receive this week. So many of you are continuing to give, and thank you for that. I want to encourage you to continue to be faithful in the area of the tithe and the offering, and, and you're doing a wonderful, wonderful job. Uh, I mean, our budget giving's good. New Day is, doing, is still doing strong. And so we're excited about that. I want to encourage you to continue to give and to continue to uh, just um, follow the Lord's leadership and, and be just a joyful, joyful giver. Uh, you can give. You can go to our website, redlanebaptist.org. Go to the bottom of the page. Click the Give button. You can give online. You can drop your offering off here at the church office or send it by mail. But continue to give. Continue uh, to help us do what we do as a church and what we do as Southern Baptists, and that is meet people's needs and take the gospel to those who need to hear it. So let's pray. Let's ask God's blessings upon the offering that we will receive as well as, uh, as, well as the remainder of this service. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel and for the fact that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And, Lord, we know uh, we know that with certainty because we've experienced it. We pray, we ask, we, we would uh, just beg you to, to reach and continue to draw more and more people to you. And, Lord, use our gifts, use our, our tithes and our offerings to do that here locally. Do it throughout our nation. God, do it through the nations as we give as Southern Baptists. Thank you so much for the privilege to do so. Would you bless this offering, bless it, and bless the giver as well. Lord, we ask your blessings and, and just your, your leadership and the rest of this service. Open your word to our hearts. Give us ears to hear, a heart to receive, and, and bless the preaching. God, we pray that you would change our hearts, draw us closer to yourself, and encourage us, strengthen us in our faith as we look to the future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 10. We're continuing on in our series, our study of the book of Revelation that we've simply called Get Ready. And that's what this book is all about. It's about preparing the church, preparing the people of God for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Revelation chapter 10, and as you're finding your place there, there is a, uh, a volunteer fire department up in the state of Minnesota that has a very interesting slogan. And I think you're going to like this. Here's the slogan of this volunteer fire department. Uh, we'll know where we're going when we get there. Think about having that slogan as a fire department. We'll know where we're going when we get there. I hear that, and I don't think that it gives me a whole lot of confidence, a a whole lot of surety that they're going to know not only where to go, but how to even extinguish the fire when they get there. 
But the funny thing about that is, is that as parents, if you're a parent, you know this to be true, we oftentimes give a very similar reply to our children. You know, when you're on that trip and you're headed down to to grandma's house, you're headed out of town for a a few hour drive and your kids constantly are asking you, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And so after about the 10th question along those lines, we as parents typically respond with, we'll be there when we get there, or you'll know we're there when we get there. I know that's the response I typically give when my kids are giving me that series of questions. Thankfully, though, the Lord gives this church a little bit more detail and a whole lot more encouragement when it comes to the unfolding of the end times, the unfolding of of the eschaton as we've been calling it. And this is good news because as human beings... We are just, we, we just have this natural desire, this natural characteristic about us that differs from the rest of the created order. Uh, we have a desire uh, for a basic understanding of what's going to happen or how things are going to work out. In other words, man wants to know the outcome. We, we desire to know the outcome. And so this desire leads people to, to, uh, to think through potential scenarios, to calculate the probabilities, to project results. That's what we do as human beings. We want to know where we are going. We want to know how things will play out. And we've been seeing this, literally we've been seeing this on television every single day for the last couple months as we have watched projections and, and all of the things that are, that are going along with the virus that has been plaguing us for these number of weeks. So when we come to the book of Revelation, as we've been studying it, what we see in the book of Revelation is that John received this, the apostle John received this revelation, and it is a gracious gift from the Lord Jesus to his church. In this revelation, God provides a futuristic glimpse, a, a, a glimpse, a window into the events that will take place during the end times. And so what, what happens here in the revelation is God is connecting, or Jesus is connecting the dots that are given in the Old Testament with, what those, are, uh, with those that are given in the Gospels and then those that are provided through the apostles. Now, it's not a detailed itinerary of everything that will happen, but what is provided in the Revelation is enough to encourage, it's enough to strengthen the church, to press on in faithfulness, to press on in obedience, and to press on in perseverance. So as we work through the book, what we've seen already is that early on in the Revelation, there are these series of letters, the seven letters to the seven churches, chapters 2 and chapter 3. And in those letters, John, as he received his, the Revelation, is revealing that persecution was being experienced within those local churches. Many of those churches were experiencing local persecution. So Jesus' words to those local churches meant or were meant to exhort them, to encourage them as believers, to spur them on in their faith, to continue to be obedient, faithful, and persevere. They were also meant to rebuke those churches and those believers who were walking at a guilty distance, calling them, drawing them back to faith and repentance. So the seven letters have the same purpose for us today. As we read them, as we studied them, as we walked through them, they serve in much the same capacity then as they do today, and vice versa. They remind us, think about this, they remind us as Christians of the importance of fidelity in our walk with Jesus. We have to remain faithful to the Lord, despite what comes or what may come against us. 
And so they also remind us of another thing, and that is all people are accountable to God. Every single person is accountable to God. And so as the revelation moves on, we, we come to chapter 4, and we see there that John is invited. Jesus has come up into heaven, so he's invited into the throne room there. And he experiences a vision of things to come. In the vision, he sees three sevenfold visions. Uh, we've walked through some of this already. There are the seven, or the yeah, the sevenfold vision of the seals. There's the vision of the seven trumpets, and then there's going to be seven bowls that we will find in Revelation chapter 16. And so, in the midst of all this, between the seals and the trumpets, between the sixth and seventh seal and the sixth and seventh trumpet, there are these interludes, these parentheses that take place between those two judgments in each series being unleashed. In the, in the series of the seals, we see there that the interlude was a twofold vision. There was the 144,000 as well as that heavenly multitude around the throne of God. And I told you a few weeks back that, that I believe that, that is, those two visions are one and the same. They are both symbolizing the church. So the 144,000 is the church there present on earth going through the tribulation, enduring and, and, and suffering persecution, but they're there as the church of God, sealed with the seal of God, protected from his judgment, protected from his wrath, but present on earth. And then the second part of that vision is the heavenly multitude. It's, it's showing the, the believers, the church, at the end of the Eschon, when it's all said and done, rejoicing in the salvation of God and the victory and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the the believers then are sealed and protected during the tribulation, but then pictured as victorious and triumphant around the throne of God. And so then comes the seventh seal, which really has no judgment. It is an ushering in of the seven trumpets, which we've worked through the last two Sundays. So as we came to the end of chapter 9 last week, we saw there the fifth and the sixth trumpets. They have sounded, and once again, we are encountering an interlude between the sixth and the seventh judgment. In this particular situation, it is the sixth and seventh trumpet. Uh, in this trumpet that's going to be blasted, or I should say in this interlude before the trumpet is blasted, we have this vision, and it is a twofold vision again. There is the first part deals with a mighty angel who holds a little scroll. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, the mighty angel and the little scroll. The second aspect of that vision involves the two witnesses there in the first part of chapter 11. Now, according to Robert Mouse, one of the commentators that I love to study on this subject, he says this, these interludes, listen to what he says, these interludes are not so much pauses in a sequence of events as they are literary devices by which the church is instructed concerning its role and destiny during the final period of world history. Now, I've told you before that one of the things we need to be careful of is getting into the getting into seeing everything in Revelation through some sort of system and, and, and getting all the sequences right. That's not the main thrust. There's not a strong aspect of chronology in what John is giving us here in the Revelation. So as we move on, we're going to see that there's not going to be an interlude between the sixth and seventh bowl judgment, 
Because at that time, the warning and all preliminary judgments will be over. The consummation will quickly move to its climax, and everything will come to an end. But in each of these numbered series, seals, trumpets, and bowls, what, ha- what is happening is this. We're being brought closer to the end. Now, this is not because each series follows one another in sequence. I just warned us to not get caught up in that sort of, sort of trap. That's not their purpose. I said a couple weeks ago that chronology is not high on John's radar. But instead, we are brought closer because each series heightens and it intensifies the final and the climatic confrontation of God and the forces of evil. There's going to be an Armageddon. There's going to be a great battle. And so, again, Robert Mounts gives us great uh, insight in regard to this. He says this, and I quote, detailed outlines of Revelation sacrifice the existential heartbeat of the apocalypse in an unfortunate attempt to intellectualize that which belongs primarily to the realm of experience. So the reason we shouldn't be so in tune with sequence and chronology and and making sure that we understand the system is because that's not the purpose. This is apocalyptic writing. Many times it it, it goes forward and it comes back and and it's kind of retelling everything. And, And so that's just part of it. Really the main thrust is John, hearing from the Holy Spirit, is wanting us as the reader to experience, to feel the intensity and all the things that are building to this one crescendo type moment when Jesus puts the enemy under his heel. And so with that in mind, let's move on in the Revelation and feel what John sees in Revelation chapter 10. Look with me as we read there. John says in verse 1, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. He called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and that there would be no more delay. But in the the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. As we came out of chapter 9, again, we saw there the blowing of the fifth and the sixth trumpets. The judgment of these trumpets, if you remember from last week, was brought 
directly against mankind. It was very unlike the first four trumpets that were brought against creation, brought against the world. But these are brought against humanity. Demons were released from the abyss to carry out these judgments. And their hatred of God and their hatred of man was fully displayed as they inflicted pain and suffering and death upon those without the seal of God upon them. In spite of these judgments... Chapter 9, verses 20 and 21 reveal to us that man refused to repent. Instead, they continued to chase idols, to worship demons, the very ones who were torturing and, de- and destroying, killing them. And so heaven's response is to delay no longer the judgment and the coming of the end. Chapter 10 begins very similar to what we see at the beginning of chapter 9 with an angel descending from heaven. And this angel, John tells us, is a mighty angel. It's very similar to what we see in chapter 5, verse 2, with the mighty angel there. This mighty angel is wrapped in a cloud. His attire is that of a cloud. It speaks of the presence of God. He has a rainbow above his head. It's like a crown representing the glory and the mercy of God. His face shone bright like the sun. And this description is interesting. It parallels the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, as well as what we see up on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John got to witness Jesus transforming into his glory where his face shone in Matthew 17. Again, this mighty angel had legs like pillars of fire. Again, reminiscent of the The picture given of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 15, it also carries overtones all the way back to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness, guiding and protecting. These descriptions of the mighty angel reveal to us that this angel was a special messenger of the Lord Jesus. Now, some would argue that this is Jesus, but I don't believe that's the case. I believe he's a special messenger. I believe he has characteristics sharing in the glory and the mission of Jesus, but he is not Jesus. He speaks on behalf of the Lord Jesus, but he's not Jesus. See this in the fact that he held in his hand the open little scroll. If we go back to chapter 5, we remember that God the Father held a scroll that was sealed with seven seals, and no one was found worthy in all of heaven to open it except for God the Son, the Lamb, who opened those seven seals. And that scroll was what we've been, <coughs> excuse me, what we, we've been calling the scroll of destiny, the, 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 the plans that would usher in the end, the judgment of God. It's very likely that the little scroll in the mighty angel's hand is a, very, is a small portion of the scroll from chapter 5, the scroll of destiny. It's containing the plan of God for the end of the present world and the judgment of God and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. It also describes the church's place and role in all of these events. So this mighty angel with the scroll in his hand, places his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the land. And so John here is no longer in heaven in the vision. Now he's pictured on earth. And as he sees this mighty angel, he stands above the land, stands above the sea, and straddles all of that. This stance suggests not only his gigantic size, but it implies that his message is for the entire world. He shouts with the voice of God. Sounds like a roaring lion. In fact, it erupts the heavens. It triggers the the sounding of the seven thunders. 
which is the only mention we find in all the Bible of these thunders, these seven thunders. And John was prevented from recording what the message was. And so we don't know a whole lot, really. We don't know anything about these seven thunders other than that they thundered. We can only speculate as to their role and as to their message. Many commentators would, would, uh, would connect these thunders back to Psalm 29 where it talks about the voice of God breaking and twisting the cedars and, and causing the deer to have fawns. And the voice of God is mighty. The voice of God is powerful. The voice of God is majestic. So the mighty angel, after he voices, he lifts his right hand to heaven and swore by God that there would be no more delay. See, God will no longer intervene to give man further opportunity to repent. Restraint will be removed, and the Antichrist will be released. The message delivered here culminates redemptive history as the forces of God and the forces of Satan will soon meet in this final confrontation. What we are seeing here as we read these words is very similar language to what we find in Daniel chapter 12. Days of the sounding of the seventh trumpet bring world history to an end. But it's not an instantaneous thing. It's another season. George Eldon Ladd points out that this is not a single act, but instead it's a period of time, which includes the seven bowls as the mystery of God is fulfilled. This mystery is not something that's necessarily hidden and secretive. It's just simply the the message of his redemptive purpose. It's the judgment of evil and the eschatological salvation of God's people. That meaning the full salvation, the salvation in its completeness at the end of time when evil has been put down and judged. Then we see in verse 8, John here calls or I should say John is called. This is an interesting aspect of this, this story, this aspect of the story. John here is called to participate in the vision. And every other thing we've seen up to this point, John is a spectator. John watches, John sees, John observes, John takes notes. And here he's called to participate. He says, go over and take the scroll from the angel's hand. He goes over, he, he asks for the scroll, he takes it, and he's also told to eat the scroll. And and the angel says something interesting. He says, when you eat of it, it's going to be sweet to your taste, but it's going to make your stomach bitter. Sounds a whole lot like the commissioning experience of Ezekiel there in Ezekiel chapter 2 and chapter 3. As he was commissioned as God's prophet to a rebellious people, he was given a scroll and told to eat it that it was going to be sweet to his taste. John is also said, very similar, spoken to with very similar words, and this is a recommissioning of him as God's prophet to proclaim the contents of the scroll. The scroll that's in the angel's hand, he eats it, and so it's recommissioning him to further profess and to preach and to teach what's going to take place. This recommissioning is done through the consumption of the scroll symbolizes the full assimilation of the message into his life. Here's something interesting for all of us who are, are gospel preachers. We have to preach it all. We have to preach the good and the bad. And so he's told that the message is sweet. God's word is sweet. Psalm 19, verse 10, Psalm 119, verse 103, and other passages remind us of the sweetness of God's word. 
reminds us that the gospel is sweet. Think about what the gospel is. The gospel message is sweet because it tells us of salvation. It tells us of the beauty of salvation. It tells us of the assurance that we have in our redemption. It tells us and assures us of vindication and the suffering that we're enduring today will be vindicated one day. It speaks and reminds us of the rewards that we have for following the Lord Jesus. The word of God is sweet tells us that God is sovereignly in charge of all that there is. And when John is receiving this, and, and the church there and that day who's receiving this, this is an encouragement to them to be reminded that God is in control. But he's also told the message is bitter. It's bitter to John because of the great suffering and the great persecution awaiting God's saints. Remember, this scroll contains the events that are going to happen. John has consumed it, and so he knows now what's going to happen. He's going to lay that out for us as we continue to walk through the revelation. There's going to be great suffering. There's going to be great persecution coming against God's people and God's church. Many of them will be martyred, as we will see, by the hands of the dragon, and the beast. It's also bitter, I believe, for another reason. It's bitter because of the reality of man's further rebellion and rejection of God. What we see in Revelation 9, 20, and 21 is going to continue to be, with few exceptions, the mindset and the heartbeat of the people without the seal of God upon them. They're going to continue to reject God and experience the judgment of God that is coming. So as I said, right here we find a great reminder to all of us who preach the gospel, share the gospel, teach the word of God. The full counsel of God, listen, the full counsel of God contains both the judgment as well as the mercy. So when we're sharing, as a messenger of the gospel, when we're sharing with others, we need to make sure that we always share both sides of the coin. It can't all be Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, Jesus wants to be in a relationship with you. It also must be the other side. There is judgment coming against you because you are a sinner. You need forgiveness. You're under the just wrath of a holy God. And so John here has these two aspects, the sweetness of the gospel as well as the bitterness that it reveals. John's recommissioning service finishes in verse 11 with a reaffirmation to go and to preach to all people. I love the fact that John is is reminded that the gospel is not just for a particular group of people. It is for all people. The call is to preach to to those alive and present there in the days of the Roman Empire, to that church then. But also, it has overtones all the way to the very end of time when all of this will take place, to that apostate civilization willingly submitting themselves to the Antichrist. The gospel, the word of God, must be preached. We're going to see this unfold when we get to chapter 11. So the scene of the mighty angel and the little scroll presents to us three realities, three things that I want us to to understand and three applications I want us to take with us. Let me share those with you really quick. First thing I want you to see is this. (coughs) Excuse me. God will sovereignly deliver his saints and judge sinners. What a great reminder. God will sovereignly deliver his saints and judge sinners. Now, the dramatic appearance of this mighty angel would have been, and it should be, a great encouragement to the church. The church who was about to enter a final period of hostility uh, from the kingdom of darkness. 
I don't know if that's here in the next few years or if that's millennia away. I don't know what the timeline and when all it's going to happen. When it, when it, but when it comes to that point, the church will greatly be encouraged to know that God is working with them to deliver them, but also bring vindication against those who make them suffer. What an encouragement. And so the angel descends. We've got to make sure that we don't forget or, or don't miss what's happening here and the drama that's taking place here. So this angel descends from God. He just doesn't arise or doesn't just walk up. He descends from heaven. He stands there solidly upon the land and the sea. He is mighty and furious. His appearance mimics the presence as well as the personality of Almighty God. He speaks with the voice of God as the heavens erupt into thunder. He holds in his hand the scroll containing the events that will bring history to its end. And then the angel proclaims that there will be no more delays in the judgment of God. That's what's happening here. These depictions and these actions express to us as the people of God, God's sovereignty to deliver his saints from this sinful world. To know that they're not alone, to know that they've not been forgotten. forgotten. They also express God's sovereignty to judge sinners. Not only will he deliver them, he's going to judge the sinful people who are harming them. Here's the application for us. As a follower of Jesus, I can rest in the sovereign protection and justice of God. It doesn't matter what my circumstances are. It doesn't matter what my situation is. It doesn't matter how good life is or how bad life is. I can always rest in the sovereign protection and the sovereign justice of God. Last fall, when we were working through the seven letters, we were working through the letter to the church at Smyrna. I shared a story with you, a story about the bishop of Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. And I told you about in 156 A.D., he was burned at the stake for not renouncing his faith in the Lord Jesus. Standing there in the midst of that fire, Polycarp said these words, Eighty-six years I have served him, served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You see, what gave Polycarp confidence to make those words is the same thing that gives believers in the end times the confidence to trust God. That is, Jesus has been good, and Jesus will continue to always be good. He will deliver his people, and he will judge sinners. That brings us to a second thing, a second reality. The church will experience great suffering, persecution, and martyrdom at the hands of Satan. Now, that's not a message that in today's world that most preachers want to lead with. Some, many, unfortunately, want to just talk about the good things, that Jesus is going to always make your life better and easy and simple, and, and you're going to be healthy, and you're going to be wealthy. But that, <coughs> excuse me, that is not, that's not reality for most Christians throughout history. That's not the reality for most Christians alive today. Now, it's true, most of us in America, we've got it pretty easy. We've got it pretty, it's simple for us. It's, it's not threatening to be a Christian so much here. It's getting harder, but it's not as threatening, not even close to most places around the world. And so when we hear this, this sort of statement, it doesn't make sense to us. Suffering, persecution, martyrdom, what is all of that about? But that's what we see in the Bible. The church will experience great suffering, persecution, and martyrdom at the hands of of Satan. You see, the continual rejection of God, the continual rejection of His Word, results in an ever-increasing hostility and rebellion against God as well as His people. 
I told you last week that the demons of hell can't do anything against God, so what do they want to do next? They want to lash out to, against those who are created in the image of God. And so as people reject God, their hostility will be unleashed against those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. These events are, cha- are, are, are pictured in chapters 11 through 19 as we see the bitterness from the scroll that John ate. That's what the bitterness was all about. It's going to be a season of intense suffering and pain, all of this experienced by the church. And so the church, we need to know, I want to remind you that the church is not experiencing suffering and experiencing persecution and experiencing martyrdom at the hands of God. No, they have the seal of God upon their lives. His wrath is not being unleashed against them. It's going against apostate man. But what's happening is, is that Satan and his followers at their hand are hurting, harming, killing, maiming the people of God. The saints are sealed and protected from God's judgment, but they are not protected from the retaliatory actions of the enemy. And so the beast and the dragon will kill as many as they can. Here's the application for us today. As a follower of Jesus, I should expect persecution in my life. I should expect persecution as a follower of Christ. Think about that. That's what the Bible tells us over and over. John 15, 12, Jesus says that. Paul's told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12, that we should expect to be persecuted. It's not a health and wealth prosperity message. It is a suffering many times type of message. This, the presence should not surprise us. The presence of suffering should not surprise us. And it should also not discourage us. It is a part of our experience as the redeemed living in a fallen world. So the church will experience great suffering, persecution, and martyrdom at the hands of Satan. There's a third reality that I want you to see. The gospel will continue to be preached as a warning of judgment and a call for repentance to all people. The renewed commission of John here highlights the prophecy spoken against society and its hostility toward God that John will return to as we move past chapter 11. We get past these, this interlude. He's going to again, as it says in, in verse 11, he's going to prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Here, here's the beauty in all that. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the message of the Lord, neither race, nor gender, nor lifestyle, nor social standing, nor nationality, or any other category you want to put in there, none of those mean anything to God. In the economy of God, there's only two distinctions. It's the seal of God and the mark of the beast. Specifically looking at, here in the book of Revelation, it's the seal of God and it's the mark of the beast. In other words, it is, it, there are those who are redeemed and there are those who are rebellious. There are the saved and there are the lost. And so the word of God will continue to be proclaimed as a warning of judgment as well as a call for repentance to all people, all nationalities, all kingdoms, all places. It's a testimony and a witness from God. Praise God. We don't have to live our lives with that sort of slogan that we began with this morning. We'll know where we're at when we get there. God has spoken. 
God has given us his word. God has revealed himself to us. God has shown us our great need for redemption. In fact, John said himself in John 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Aren't you glad this morning that God has spoken? God has revealed. God has shown you the right path versus the wrong path. What we have here in Revelation chapter 10 is an offer to believers, an offer of encouragement, an offer of strength in the face of suffering and persecution. It also calls non-believers to faith and repentance. Man, that's good news. Because as we move further in this this revelation, we're going to see that things are going to get worse and worse and worse. But the faithfulness of God to his people and to the gospel continue. What is the gospel? Well, we talk about it in three ways here at Red Lane. We speak of good news, we speak of bad news, and we speak of best news. The good news is that God created you, God loves you, God forms you, God has done everything necessary to, to, to just be in relationship with you. I mean, you are a creation, you're the, made in the image of God. There's something wonderful and unique about you in your design. You are loved by God. The bad news is, is that you're sinful. Every one of us are sinful. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us our sin separates us from God. He's holy, and we and our sin are not holy. He is righteous, and we're unrighteous. He is holy and, and righteous and good, and we're not those things. And so our sin separates us from Him. It also puts us under the wrath and the judgment of God. It continues to break us in all sorts of ways. We are a mess. There's nothing we can do to fix ourselves or to bring ourselves into a relationship with God. We can't put ourselves back together enough to be acceptable in the hands and the sight of God. But here's the best news. God sent His Son to die on a cross, to shed His blood, to be a sacrifice, to pay the penalty, and the full restitution for your sin to redeem you, in other words. And so the Bible tells us that if we will call out, if we will call out to the Lord, if we will confess our sins and our need for Jesus, if we will trust Him as Lord and Savior, believe that He died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, was resurrected from the dead, if we will believe the Bible's message of salvation, we can be saved. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. doesn't matter what side of the tracks you grew up on. doesn't matter your educational background, your wealth status. doesn't matter any of those things. doesn't matter if you're an alcoholic, a porn addict. It doesn't matter. Or if you're a self-righteous, good-tissue, church-going person. doesn't matter at all. The gospel is for all people. I love Romans 10, 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the best news of all. And so in this message about a mighty angel and a little scroll, we see a message about judgment. But we also see a message of hope. Hope for those who would look to Jesus and call out to him for salvation. This morning, what prevents you from placing your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior? As a follower of Jesus, maybe you're walking at a guilty distance. What today is keeping you from turning from your sin and turning back to the Lord in faithfulness and repentance. In just a moment, there's going to be a slide on the screen. And if you want to talk with somebody about what it means to follow Jesus as a Lord, as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to, uh, to, to just follow the instructions on that screen. You can send us a direct message through Facebook, this Facebook live feed, or 
you can email us at info at redlanebaptist.org, or you can get on our webpage. You can go to redlanebaptist.org, click the Contact Us button at the top of the screen, and send us a message. But do this for me. If you want to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all you've got to do is just say one simple word in one of those formats, believe. And we will follow up with you. We'll call you. We'll email you. We'll get a hold of you in whatever format you allow us to do. And we'll talk with you further about what it means to follow Jesus. This morning, if you're a Christian and you want to, um, I don't know, you've got needs in your life, you want prayer, if you want to rededicate your life, you just feel like the Lord's speaking and leading you to make a decision today. You just, um, you just reach out to us in one of those formats. And just say, simply say something like, I want to talk further. And we will follow up with you, and we'll talk further with you about what it means and what God is doing in your life. But we want to hear from you. We, we want you to respond. I believe wholeheartedly that anytime the Word of God is taught, anytime the Word of God is preached, God is speaking, and thus we need to respond. And so I want to encourage you to do that and allow us to pray with you and to come alongside of you and help you in your faith. Let me pray for you and encourage you in your walk with Jesus, and then I uh, hope you have a great, great day rest of the day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement you've given us that though times will be difficult when it comes to an end, we still have a faithful God who watches over, protects, and guides his people through those difficulties. We thank you that salvation will be final one day. (coughs) And God, we thank you for the hope that that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray that you will bless all those who've listened to us today, those who will listen to us in the days to come. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to draw and speak to those who need to have a a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, I pray for those Christians who who perhaps are walking at a guilty distance and need to come home. Lord, help them to reach out and give us an opportunity to speak with them and help them in this decision. Lord, bless us as a church. Use us mightily in our community and around this state for your glory and for your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much for being with us today on this beautiful Sunday morning. We're so grateful uh, that you are tuning in. I want to encourage you to continue to do so. My prayer is that God will bless you today and that you'll have a fabulous week in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you next time.